0: And I'll make a true confession at this point, I like war. Now, I don't like the hurt, and I don't like the pain, and I don't like the death and the blood, and of course, I've never been in a real physical war. So for me to say that, you have to temper that. There might be people in the room today who have actually fought in a war, or who have lost loved ones in a war, and they would hear a statement like that, I like war, and think the man's an idiot. They might be right. But I would admit to you that I have never been in war. But I like it. God graciously gave me the opportunity to meet a man by the name of Bruce Bickle He came to our church for a shepherd's conference some years ago and we hit it off very well He was kind of everything I thought I wanted to be He was about 6'1", steel blue eyes, incredibly good looking A phenomenal athlete, he played behind Roger Staubach in college He was a United States Navy Air Force pilot And he flew in Vietnam Man, if I could have picked my scenario, that would have been it Though now that I've been called to the ministry, I wouldn't trade this for anything. But Bruce came to the Shepherds Conference, and I had the chance to play racquetball with him. And we kind of struck up a little bit of a relationship, and I asked him what it was like. My uncle was an Air Force pilot in World War II. He was an ace, fighter pilot ace, later served in the War College. I have a lot of that in me. I feel it. And I said, Bruce, what's it like, you know, to fly? Tell me something about flying. And so he began to describe things, kind of boring at first, but I began to ask all the right questions to really milk this guy for something that happened to him. And he opened up his heart a little bit and shared a time that he was flying kind of a support mission deep in the Vietnamese territory. And he was flying very low on a strafing mission because there were some foot soldiers he was giving support to. And about the time he was ready to just bail out, he saw some flashes and he took it in the sides of his jet and this flak nailed him. And it was obvious that he would have to crash land and so he went down into the jungle and on his way down into the jungle he looked to the side and he saw great numbers of the Vietnamese, the, the VC, the communists, troops and he landed, crash landed no more than 150 to 100 yards away from them and he crashed and as he looked at himself, he, he noticed that a bone from his right leg was sticking out of his skin. And the left part of his foot had been almost ripped in half and was just hanging there like that. Understanding he was deep in enemy territory, understanding only a hundred yards away, the VC were there knowing what they would do to him if they caught him. Being a highly trained uh, pilot, they would try to extract all this information from him. And the only thing he could do was flip an SOS switch, which sent a signal straight up in the air. And it just so happens that the jungle he told me he landed in was what he called a three-tier jungle which had a canopy of ivy and leaves and all that junk of the of the jungle at about fifty feet and then another fifty feet there was another layer of that and another fifty feet another layer of that and it completely eclipsed the sun the sky everything he was just stuck the advantage to landing there was that it would take those troops nearly an hour to move that far only a hundred yards in that dense of jungle so he had an hour for that little s o s thing to bring in help and about fifty minutes later he heard the troops coming. He could hear them hacking their way through. They were on their way Very close, and then he heard the blessed sound of that chopper whop wop 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 and it began to come in and it picked up the SOS signal It sat right over his jet and the the bottom of this huge gigantic Helicopter opened up and a nine-foot steel blade like a whirly bird came out and cut its way down through all this jungle then it went back up and then a basket was lowered Now the guys in that chopper knew it was coming down And he said the proper procedure would have been that the medic would have landed him down Picked up the the, the pilot, Bruce, put him in there given first a shot of morphine to deaden the pain Then the the pilot would have been taken up Then the basket would have come down Then the the medic would have jumped in and it would have gone up and they would have gone home But in light of the impending danger The medic jumped out, grabbed him, threw him in, jumped on top and up they went Now, I had goosebumps when he told me this story. And you know what I was thinking about as he told me this? The medic. Man, I don't want to be the medic who is safe in a helicopter, who is obviously aware that danger is very near, and who makes the decision to get in and go down, and he may never, ever, ever come back up again because somebody down there needs his help. That's what I like about war. I like the honor, the integrity, the chivalry, the courage, the strength, the commitment, fear under control. There's something about it. When I think of the battle, I think of the extremes and severity of life and death situations. It's now or never. It's us or them. It's me or you. There's no reverse, there's no turning back, I pull all the plugs, I pull all the stops, and I say, here I come, I'm giving you everything I've got. It's you, or it's me. Question, why is that so missing in Christianity today? Where is that attitude? If, in fact, and it is true that all of the chapters of the Bible, with the exception of four, all of the chapters of the Bible, with the exception of four, do nothing but describe and narrate for us the battle and the war between God and Satan. The first two chapters are creation. The last two chapters are the eternal state. Everything else involves the head-to-head conflict between Satan and God. We are in a war. We are in a spiritual battle. It's as real as Bruce Bickles. But why is the honor and the integrity and the chivalry and the commitment and the sold-out attitude about that war so missing in American Christianity? I guess I have to say to myself, why, Russell, is it so missing from your own life? Why are you at times lethargic? Come say, come say. Maybe I will, maybe I won't almost pathetically uninvolved this morning as we try to talk just a little bit about what it means to advance the kingdom of God I want us to ramble through the scriptures and you're gonna have to stay with me because it's not gonna come out of one passage it's not going to be easy you're gonna pay a price to get what I'm trying to say today but I would like to talk about three things the warfare the warlord and the warrior let's start with the warfare the warfare what is the warfare in the kingdom of god there are two aspects there are two aspects of the thing we call the kingdom of god there is his universal kingdom and then there is his mediatorial kingdom His universal kingdom and His mediatorial kingdom. Allow me to explain to you the first, the universal kingdom. The universal kingdom simply refers to the fact that God rules everything and everyone forever. God is sovereign. He is the creator, the sustainer, the beginning and the end. He dominates all things. Psalm 2910, let me just read it to you. The Lord sitteth upon the flood, yea, the Lord sitteth king for how long? Forever. Psalm 103, 19. Jot that down. Let me read it. The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens. His kingdom ruleth over all. God, in his universal kingdom, rules everyone for all time. That's the universal kingdom. What's his mediatorial kingdom? What is that part? What is this second aspect? The mediatorial kingdom is not His direct rule, but His rule, this is where we get involved, mediated through human instruments. His rule, mediated through human instruments. There's the universal kingdom, there's the mediatorial kingdom. That's what He said in Matthew 6, 9, and 10, where they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And He said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. What? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven Heaven would speak to his universal kingdom You know, everybody up there always does exactly what he says to do The universal kingdom up in heaven He says, God, let it happen down here on earth Let thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven Establish your kingdom, establish your will to be done here on earth The way that it is done up in heaven The earth is in a state of rebellion, you understand that At creation, God made Adam and Eve vice-monarchs, and God exercised His mediatorial rule, not His direct rule, but His rule of the earth through humans. It was perfect. They were in submission to Him. It was as it ought to have been. The fall came, Satan was the usurper, and Satan has become the monarch of this world. The rest of history is describing the expression and the reestablishment of God's mediatorial kingdom on earth. God's rule in your heart, my heart and others hearts. So with the fall, Satan became the monarch. But God has said, I still want to rule on earth. I want my will, I want my word known on this earth It's if he's standing there saying I want my standards and my moral absolutes to be known I want to call men into my kingdom Because that's where they come into subjection to those things Now let's go back just quickly We've seen the fall Then who came next? The patriarchs, right? And they were a part of that process And then finally God raised up the nation of Israel You ever wonder why? Why the nation of Israel? Isaiah 43 says You are my witnesses, declares the Lord He says that to the nation of Israel You are my witnesses What was the plan? The plan was that God would be specially and peculiarly related to the nation of Israel They would live in a godly way before him and he would bless them Genesis 12, 1-3 says I will bless you And those who bless you, I will bless them Speaking of the other nations of the world How was God in the Old Testament trying to establish his mediatorial kingdom? It was this way. Israel, you live before me. Give glory to me. Live in a manner before me that the other nations of the world will see who the true living God is. And as they learn that through you because you are my witnesses, they too will become rightly related to me and my kingdom will be established. Israel was never and end in herself. Sometimes you lead, read the, you know, the Pentateuch and you find how God was so intimately involved with Israel. And you say to yourself, what about all the other nations of the world? Didn't God care about the other nations? It's not until you understand that the reason God raised Israel up was so that they could be a light, a beacon. A nation properly related to God, not for their own sake. But so that the other nations of the world could look at Israel and say they know the true and living God. I want to know that God. And that happened. Often that happened. I could give you examples of that. Where nations would understand that and come under the rule of God through Israel. But more often than not, what was their case? Failure. Was Israel successful? No. Israel was a failure. Two thousand years of hard-hearted, stiff-necked rebellion against the plan of God. They knew clearly what God wanted them to do. But for these two thousand years, they said no. They rejected. They said, I do not want to be a part of establishing your mediatorial kingdom on earth. And so what did they do? They worshipped Baal. They followed other gods. They failed to keep the covenant over and over and over again until God was finally so fed up after he sent all of his prophets who Israel fell to Assyria. They were destroyed. Judah fell to Babylon. They were destroyed. We hear no more of the ten tribes. Israel, Judah was restored for the restoration. They rebuilt the temple and waited for who? Christ. So Christ comes. Turn to Matthew for a minute. I guess if we were to put it in the vernacular of our message, we've lost the first several battles with Israel. They've absolutely blown out. The troops hit the beach and got smeared. And now they're in a position to receive their chief and commanding officer. And he returns and comes to them in his first coming. Matthew is the book to describe what happens. Matthew is a book The theme of Matthew says that Jesus is king And that he's come to establish his kingdom Let's go through it just quickly Chapter 1 Establishes that he has the genealogy of the king He's related to David Yes, he's our king He's got the right genealogy Chapter 2 He fulfills numerous Old Testament historical prophecies To say, yeah, he's the real Jesus This can't be a phony Nobody else could fill all those Old Testament prophecies Number 3 He's baptized and God speaks from heaven, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. These are the credentials of the king. He's got the right genealogy. He's got the right history and past. God the Father speaks audibly and approves of him. And fourthly, in the temptation in chapter four, where he fights Satan in the wilderness, he's been starving now, fasting for 40 days, and he victoriously defeats Satan, which says he has a king, has the moral character to be king. The first four chapters say Jesus is worthy to be king. Right genealogy, right history. Being baptized by the Father, and fourthly, the moral qualifications. Chapters 5, 6, and 7, we call that the Sermon on the Mount, right? You know what the whole basis of the Sermon on the Mount communicates? What is true righteousness in the kingdom of God? If you want to be in the kingdom of God, if you want to establish the mediatorial reign of God on earth, this is the standard of true righteousness. He says things like, You've heard it's been said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that any man who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. True kingdom righteousness is what 5, 6, and 7 are all about. And then, chapters 8 and 9. What goes on in 8 and 9? If you read it, you'll find miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. He calms the sea. He casts out demons. He heals the paralytic. He forgives the sinner. He raises a girl from the dead. He causes the dumb to speak. What's he trying to prove? Not only do I have the right credentials... Not only have I communicated to you in the Sermon on the Mount, true kingdom righteousness, but I am God. And he begins to present his kingdom offer. He begins to tell the leaders of Israel, you must repent. You are whitewashed sepulchers. You're sinful people acting religiously. You want to be a part of my kingdom, you must repent. And what do they do with that message? Look at chapter 12, verse 14. This is really kind of sad when you see it in light of all of history. Verse 14 says, but the Pharisees went out and counseled together against him as to how they might destroy him. First picture of the cross in this gospel. Jesus comes to a nation that's failed for 2000 years. Chief and commanding officer is now on the scene ready to lead the troops in triumph. First of all, he proves who he is. My qualifications, one to four. Then he tells them, this is how we're going to go in the kingdom. You want to be a part, here it is. Then he proves he's God, chapters 8 and 9. And as soon as they get all these things in sync in their little peon brains, and they understand what they're dealing with, the first thing they want to do, kill him. Why? Because the same attitude that they have had for the last 2,000 years is in effect today. We do not want to be a part of the kingdom program. We've got our own program, we run it our way. It's called pride, selfishness, and sin. So it reaches a climax here in verses 22 and 23 in Matthew 12. It was brought to him, Jesus, a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb, and he healed him so that the dumb man spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and began to say, This man cannot be the Son of God, can he? But when the Pharisees, now again, the religious leaders heard it, they said, This man, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Amazing, isn't it? They finally look Jesus Christ square in the face. These are his people. This is Israel. These are the people that are supposed to move the kingdom. And they say, You, my friend, are satanic. You are satanic. And at this point, something very unique happens in history. Jesus Christ stops asking Israel to be a part of moving his kingdom. He turns his face to the cross and his focus to the church. How do I know that? Chapter 13, it's full of all the parables of the church age. Chapter 13 completely describes what it's going to be like between the first and the second coming of Christ. That's the church age. You finally make your way into chapter 16, verse 18, and there are those famous words, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, I know this is hard. Um, We're covering a lot of space, but get, get it one more time. God established his rule through Adam and Eve. They fell. Satan became the monarch. God said, that's tough. I'm coming back at it. I want to establish my rule in the hearts of men. He raises up the nation of Israel. Cares for them tenderly all the way through their experience in Egypt, out into the wilderness and into the land of Canaan. For 2,000 years, they look at him square in the face and say, we don't want any part of you, God. We will. We would rather delight ourselves in in, in the prostitutes of Baal. Worshipping the creature rather than the creator They bear no testimony to God They do not bear witness to him on the whole And as a result, God sends his own son to lead the troops And and over and over when Jesus comes He says, I have come, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand He came offering the kingdom to Israel at that point He proves his credentials He preaches on kingdom righteousness He proves that he's God And they want to kill him and call him satanic So he rejects them Partially for now. And he says, The church, the church, the church. I will build my kingdom now through the church. Point number one you want to advance the kingdom, you've got to do it in the church. Because that's how Jesus said to do it. Another implication of that statement is where is the battle raging fiercest? The church. That is his new weapon. That is his new group of people So the warfare Is to establish the mediatorial reign of God on earth It used to be Israel's job Now it's ours In the church May I just heighten your sensitivity to this By asking you to write down 1 Peter chapter 2 And let me read a verse Listen to what he says This he says to us But you are a chosen race who, who has that been used of in the past? Israel. A royal priesthood. That was Israel. A holy nation. Israel. A people for God's own possession. This is, these are, this is being quoted right out of the Old Testament in this New Testament book. He says, he says, but you, New Testament Christian, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light We are not Israel I don't mean to say that we are the same But what he was using and asking Israel to do in the Old Testament He is now calling us the same words and giving us the same commission Proclaim the excellencies of God So I guess what I'm trying to say here The warfare is ours The burden of moving the kingdom of God rests squarely on your shoulders and my shoulders in the vehicle of the church. And the question that has to be answered is, are we going to be any better than the nation of Israel? Are we going to be those who would stand before God and quietly and sometimes subversively and sometimes even with Christian language say, I'm unavailable. I don't want to be a part of your kingdom. Count me out. Well, if that's the warfare, what's the warlord? A warlord in the dictionary is defined as a commanding officer who has seized a territory. Who has seized a territory. He doesn't have the whole thing, he's got a particular part of it. The warlord is Satan. Unless you think we're not in a battle, and I know that's hard sometimes because we don't feel like we're in a battle because we got all the money we need, we got all the food we need, we wear all the right kinds of clothes and we do all the right kinds of things and it's hard to find where the battle's going on. Let me remind you of the warlord. By talking to you about his names His attributes and his works Right out of scripture Names of Satan He has 22 names Did you know that? He's called Satan or the adversary The devil which means slanderer The prince of the power of the air The god of this age The king of death The prince of this world The ruler of darkness Leviathan Lucifer The dragon The deceiver Apollyon Which means destroyer Beelzebul, prince of the demons Belial, translated vileness or ruthlessness The wicked one, the tempter, the accuser of the brethren The angel of light, a liar, a murderer, the enemy, and a roaring lion I got my first real strong personal dosage of demonic oppression this summer We were heading out with 50 collegians to go to New York City A lot of you know about that Man, we were just in the airport. We hadn't even hit New York City yet. We were still kind of revving our engines trying to get off the ground. And we're in that, we're not actually on the plane. We're sitting out in that that waiting area. And when you bring a whole bunch of people, you get them there really early so everybody's on time. So there's 50 of us sitting around and one of our buddies starts strumming a guitar. And we're sitting over on the side singing praises to the Lord because we're kind of excited about what we're going to be doing. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere... This man, about 55 years old, walks over to our group. And I'm over here at the side talking to somebody else. And they're kind of about 15 yards across the way. And I hear this yelling and this screaming. And this man is pointing at one of our students. Just at the top of his lungs, all over this whole thing. You know, LAX, International. Screaming and yelling at them for singing. He says, this is a good airline. None of you Christians on this airline. You'll have to find another one. He says, and you little girl, why are you looking at me like that? If you were my daughter, I'd slap you like I do my own daughter. He's going on and on like this. Well, my dandruff's getting up a little bit because he's talking to my group, see? So I strap my body on over and stick mine between him and his my group. And I'm kind of between here and there, you know, saying, excuse me, sir. And the guy goes absolutely fruitcake. And this is my nose, okay? This is his nose. What the world do you want? Nose to nose. The guy had bad breath. And he's literally, I've never met the man before in my life. I've done nothing wrong to him, but he is actually literally nose to nose with my face, screaming and yelling at me that if I were his son, he'd beat me like he beat his son. It went on and on and on and on. He'd go away, he'd come back. I'd step in between. He'd go away, he'd step in between. I was scared to death. Thought any second I was going to get killed. Finally, the police came, praise God. And through some conversation with the, the airport people who were in charge of our airline, it was our request that he not go on that plane with us because he was scheduled to go to New York on the same plane. It would have been a long ride. I'd never experienced that before, and there was no other explanation for that than that, 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 that Satan was kind of after us. And we pulled the group together and we said, you know, that's a good thing that just happened. That means we're going to be going to do something kind of exciting in the kingdom of God. And we can't even get on our plane yet, and Satan's all over us. We forget about Satan, don't we? We kind of just live without any recognition that he's in existence, because we don't see him too much. Maybe a lot of the times, and I say this to my own condemnation, maybe I'm not as aware of Satan as because I'm always kind of in the back lines. And if I were more on the front lines, I'd be more aware of what my opposition was. What are his attributes? He's described by the Bible intelligence, memory. He possesses a will, desire, passion, pride, wrath. He has great organizational ability. He imitates God. He has his own synagogues. He has his own doctrines. He has his own mysteries, his own throne. He has his own kingdom. He has his own worshipers. He has his own angels, his ministries, his miracles, his sacrifices, his fellowships, his armies. He instigates false doctrine, taking the word of God out of context, making us over one doctrine at the expense of another. He hinders the works of God's servants. Paul says, wherefore, we would have come to you. I, Paul, once again, but Satan has hindered me. He resists the prayers of God's servants He blinds men to the truth This is a tough verse In whom the God of this world, that Satan, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not Satan has blinded the minds of them that believe not He lays snares for men, he tempts, he afflicts He deceives, he undermines the sanctity of the home He steals the word of God from human heart He accuses the Christian before God It was Satan who caused David to disobey God, 2nd Chronicles 21.1, or maybe it's 1st, 1st Chronicles, and Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. It was Satan who caused Peter to rebuke Christ and later to deny him. It was Satan who caused Ananias to lie to the Holy Spirit, each one of these people of course responsible for their own activity, but in that way tempted and led. We're in a warfare. And we fight a formidable warlord, one whom I think we take for granted. Can I remind you the incident of Job? Something that's familiar to all of us, but just allow me to remind you of it. Job was a good man, a righteous man. And God, in his providence, allowed Satan to have his sway with Job. And you remember what happened? Job was standing there on a nice day and and some guy, a guy ran up to him and said, I've been with your camels and and some foreign people, we've destroyed your camels and all your servants are dead and before he could finish speaking another man came up to him and says, I was just with the sheep and a foreign, or I think it was fire from heaven came down and burned up all the sheep and all your servants with them and then before he could finish another man ran up to him, this is true stuff, I mean you gotta put yourself in this situation have a nice day you know." Uh, the third man came up and says, I was with your donkeys. And they and all your servants have been taken captive and slain. The fourth guy came and said, and, and I was at the house of your children. And all of his children were in the house dining and worshipping and fellowshipping together. And it says that a great wind came and knocked the house down and the, the roof fell on top of them. he says, all of your children, all of your children are dead. Boom, 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 boom. And that didn't seem to be enough. So Satan went back and asked for a little more per- permission to actually touch him. Touch the body of Job. And he did. And we read there that he, he had boils from head to toe. Several symptoms. He had skin disease covering his entire body. He itched to the extent that he scraped his skin with a potsherd. He was in acute pain, Job 2.13 tells us, such that his friends didn't even talk to him. His flesh attracted worms and became crusty and hard. It oozed serum and became dark in color. He experienced fever and aching bones. Medical doctors have said it may have been elephantitis or leukemia of the skin. All of that back to back. May I just suggest to you that if Satan had permission, he'd do that to you too. That's the expression of him. There it is. Who is Satan? Read Job, find out. If he had his sway, he'd do that and then he'd take your life. He's not a friendly person. He is your foe. We read in 1 Peter 5, 8 that he is like a roaring lion continually in the, in the tense there. A roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Interesting, the word devour is used of those animals that suck their prey whole and just swallow it. Much like a snake devours its prey. He does that constantly, seeking someone to devour. Therefore, be on alert, Christian. Advancing the kingdom of God. It's something that God has been trying to do over the centuries. For some reason, He's chosen to work through us. As a result, it may not have gone as well as it might have. Israel, for 2,000 years, so hard-hearted, They wanted nothing to do with it until finally the chief commanding officer came and they killed him. And then he says, I'll turn my attention to my New Testament saints, the church. We fight against Satan. Satan, the adversary. So if that's the warfare, and if that's the warrior, or the, the warfare, the warlord, and now the warrior, that's us. Turn to Ephesians Six Ephesians Chapter Six Verse Twelve says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, stand firm. The word struggle there in verse 12 is a word in the Greek that's used to describe a wrestling match. It's hand-to-hand combat. It's characterized by trickery and strategy. Not only do we fight the forces of hell, but in some way it's, it's personalized, hand-to-hand combat. The phrase that I like most about these two verses is found at the end of verse 13. Because this is really war. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And then here it is. Having done everything. Kata gerdzamai. Having done everything in the Greek. It means having made all necessary preparations and being prepared to do anything and everything which the crisis demands to defeat the enemy and hold the position having made all the necessary preparations and then being committed to doing anything and everything that must be done to defeat the enemy and maintain the position The battle for Iwo Jima was such an event. Let me remind you of it. It began on February 19th, 1945, and it was the United States Marine Corps' single bloodiest engagement of World War II. With 6,821 Marines and attached personnel killed, and 19,217 wounded, about one out of every three Marines on that island died. It was the greatest toll of American casualties in the war, considering the scope and magnitude of the battle. The trauma of so many dying around the 556-foot Mount Suribaki, from which the Japanese had a perfect field of fire on the landing forces, can be summed up in what their commanding. The Japanese commanding general thought was his farewell radio message to military headquarters in Tokyo. He's going down. The Japanese commander knows it. It's over. And this is his last farewell radio message. The battle is approaching its end. Since the enemy's landing, even the gods would weep at the bravery of the officers and men under my command. In particular, I am pleased that our troops with empty hands carried out a series of desperate fights against an enemy possessing overwhelming material superiority on land, sea, and air. However, my men died one by one, and I regret very much that I have allowed the enemy to occupy a piece of Japanese territory. Now there is no more ammunition. There is no more water. All the survivors will engage in general attack. I like that. I like that. We're given everything we've got. We will not yield our territory. and if it kills me, I will not give it to you. You must take it. Christian, be encouraged. We must fight like this. This must be our commitment. This must be the standard. This must be the way we approach our Christian life. Personally, are you prepared to do anything and everything in your fight to be holy, to be godly, to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, to love your neighbor as yourself, we fight a different kind of battle are you prepared to fight for your time in the word understanding that it's crucial to your success with that kind of intensity with that kind of vigor you know we've experienced a lot of discomfort because our bathrooms have not been completed and a lot of us wondered, why not? We've been dying to get them done for you. For months we've been dying to get them done. We've threatened people, we've pushed people, we've asked people, we've done everything we can do within a godly sphere to put the right kind of pressure on people to make them get that job done for you. And for some reason and in some way it did not get done. But you know, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love it, Right? I'd like to share with you some some news, some exciting news. The contractor in charge of our laminating, who's in charge of doing the bathrooms, not the contractor who does all of our dorm building and construction. The other guy, who's in charge specifically, he's an independent contractor of our bathrooms. His name is Alan. And what's exciting to know, gang, is that Alan has been in our campus for a long time. And we've been kind of working with him, as I said, in in godly ways to try to help him get this thing done. But he saw all of us. And then you guys came. And he saw all of you. And yesterday, the other contractor, Keith, in a meeting over in our boardroom, began to talk to Alan about the things of God, because Alan's not saved. And Alan said, I'm empty. I haven't got a leg to stand on, personally. And Keith led Alan to the Lord. Man, that's what I call fighting and winning the battle. And I want to encourage you and thank you by saying, because you were personally holy, because you showed love, because of who you are in Christ, you bore witness to the living God. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. He says, you're a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, that you might bear witness to the excellencies of God. You have done that. We have won that battle. I want to challenge you to take the mentality of an absolute total commitment Sold out. It's me or it's you. It's now or it's never. There are no tomorrows. I am going to win this battle right now. Whether it's lust, whether it's time management, whether it's friendship and being a truly loving, caring person, whether it's your time in the Word, no matter what it is, would you embrace the advancing the kingdom? We are at a war. People who you do not even know are watching you. God is counting on you. We cannot be like Israel who for 2,000 years was stubborn. We must be supple and trainable in the hand of God. And secondly, and lastly, I would like to challenge you towards local church ministry. History reveals that God was trying to do it through Israel. Now He's doing it through the church. This is what I mean by that. For you to say... I will do it by myself. I don't need to be involved in local church ministry. It's for you to say in the analogy of spiritual warfare and real battle, I will go fight the Japanese by myself over here. It does not matter to me that the President of the United States and all of the generals under them have said, this is our beachhead, these are our commanders, and this is where you fit. It doesn't bother me that they say that. I'm an independent, lone-type star Christian. I don't need the local church. I don't need to be involved in ministry there. I'll do my own ministry over here the way I want to do it. That is paramount to saying to the President of the United States, I don't care which beachhead you guys are going after. I don't care where MacArthur's going to be, General MacArthur. I'm over here by myself. Now, you might kill a few people. You might have some impact. But don't you understand that the church is more than a building on a corner where people come on Sunday mornings? The church is the divine and powered institution which God has placed on the planet to move His kingdom. And we are the soldiers. And if we do not take our ranks under the leadership of the church, those being our generals, our elders, our pastors, if we do not flow at their command, if we do not march to the beat of their drummer, my friends, we got a scattered force and we're not going to hit like we ought to hit. Now, I feel free to say that to you because we don't require that of you. But the Word of God teaches it. And you're going to say, I don't have time. And you're going to say, I'm not interested. And you're going to say, I don't like that person. I can't find it. There's a million and one reasons why you could talk yourself out of being diligently and seriously committed to local church ministry. They're all wrong. Because the battle's going to be fought. The place is the church, and you're the warrior. We need your help. Let's pray.